Greetings, and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today I'm joined by Sizen. Greetings and salutations. So, that's an interesting name. How did you come by it? I hearken back to my old freeform RPG days, uh, a little-known game for most everybody on the internet these days called Tyrant's Cove. Uh, at the time, Mortal Kombat 3 had just come out and become extremely popular on PlayStation 1, and there was a new character called Strindle, or no, Sindel, in that game. And I decided to make a male version of that character. And somehow or another, amongst all of the name generators and horrible decision-making that a 19-year-old kid could make, Sazen came out of it. The character died horribly in the first day in the game, because I was not playing it properly, and then later was resurrected, the name at least, uh, with an entirely different character by a good friend of mine, uh, who later... I, the character actually survived for a good long time, but it came about because I was using terrible, terrible, terrible name generators and basing the name off of Mortal Kombat characters. As far as your... RPG history, did you start off as a player or as a GM? A uh, player, for sure. I mean, I don't count the couple of times where I tried to run a game with some friends in the bedroom when I was 9 or 10 with AD&D or any of the other GURPS books that I happened to pick up from the local um, best term for it. Because they weren't quite garage sale swap meet stores, but they were pretty close. Do you remember your first character? Uh, yep, I'm, I was pretty sure, I'm, I don't remember the name, but I know it was a wizard, and I was trying to be as overpowered as possible because I had been reading Lord of the Rings, and Gandalf was my hero. It's pretty natural. Yeah, that seems to be what everybody defaults to. If they, if you're reading Lord of the Rings when you first start playing, you want to be either Gandalf or, well, usually Gandalf, because that pretty much wins. Every now and then you want to be Legolas. Do you remember what the first campaign was, or was it even a campaign? It wasn't even a campaign. It was, I printed off, or I had my dad print off on his dot matrix printer uh, some crappy files that I had found um, via Usenet or Telnet or whatever it was back then. This was mid-90s, 92, 93, 94, that area. So they weren't that great of quality. And I had him print off a couple of these things, and he complained about it because I was using all of his ink, of course. And then I drew a bunch of crap that tried to go with it and stole as much information as I could out of every book that I ever read. Who was the dungeon master for that? See, we didn't understand dungeon masters at the time. So we just kind of said, this is what we want to do. And I we all kind of populated the area with various enemies that we wanted to fight and didn't really care about the rules and just tried to use the spells and roll the dice and just sat there for a couple hours and horribly, horribly, horribly played AD&D. If a dungeon master had sat down with us, he would have cried. So you weren't doing it wrong. You were just pioneering freeform RPG. Sort of. If you want to call it that and be real generous, sure. What would you say was your first actual campaign? I didn't really get back into Dungeons & Dragons campaigns until I was out in California, and we ran a 3.5 module, and I can't even remember the name of it. My buddy Malcolm DM'd us, and that was my re-entry into the Dungeons & Dragons realm. I just I can't remember the name of the module that he ran, but it was set in the... It was set in Waterdeep. I do remember that much. I just can't remember the module name now. That was 10, 15 years ago. What was your first foray into dungeon mastering? Uh, this past year. Uh, last year, actually, was the first time I'd ever actually properly uh, dungeon mastered a D&D game. I had tried to run a GURP game once before, and again, for, Freeform was my bread and butter for years. I ran two or three different Freeform RPG games. Those were all pretty much homebrew created. We wrote the rules ourselves, and there was 70 or 80 people online that played through Talk City. I don't know if you ever heard of that website back in the day. 
<clears throat> but we ran from that for the vast majority of it. Uh, and then when I finally got back to D&D 3.5 out in California, uh, and then I moved here, I found a group of people. We started running a 5e game. And I started with a homebrew little island and then started taking them into Lost Minds of Fandor. And then the plan was to go further using just the modules, trying to jump around in the modules a little bit. Did you stick to the modules or did you go off the beaten path fairly quickly? Well, I, the first, the very first session was a completely homebrew session. The players didn't, they weren't players. They never played before. This was their first foray. So I was like, Lost Minds is not exactly hard, but it's a little bit more rules heavy. So I created a little prisoner situation, kind of the stock standard. If you don't want to stop into, if you don't want to start into a tavern, you make them all prisoners. And I did that in a little town and they had to fight their way out with some really, really sub level sub one eight CR soldiers to fight and get out of. And then we moved into Fandelver. Did you do anything beforehand to prepare yourself for GMing other than just reading the material? Uh, read the material fiercely, and then I listened and read every single post forum, Reddit, anything about DMing. I, 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 if it was an online resource in the last 24 months for new GMs, I probably read it. I read and watched uh, Matt Mercer's uh, DM's guide that he did for Critical Role last year. Read a bunch of stuff from Perkins on the Watsy websites and various forums that he uses. Reddit, for God's sakes, I was on Reddit reading those, which was a bad idea. Don't do that. Do you have any, what you would consider, DM role models? Perkins, for sure. Uh, Perkins, Matt Mercer, Ivan Van Norman can do wonderful things with games that aren't D&D. I haven't really seen him run any real big D&D games, but he can do amazing things with other games. Mercer's everybody. I think Mercer right now is everybody's D&D god as far as D Dungeon Masters are concerned. Are you still running that campaign, or have you splintered off by now? Uh, sadly, that one kind of fell apart. Scheduling and whatnot. I changed shifts. They changed schedules. It worked out to the point where we couldn't really get together so much anymore. We've tried a couple times to talk about it and see what we could do, but so it couldn't really solidify. So I've revamped that campaign, completely rewrote it, at least the first half, and taken out Lost Minds, and it is now a new homebrew that I'm running for an online group. Still in 5th edition? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the easiest way these days to bring somebody in. 3.5 is rules-heavy. Pathfinder will break your brain if you don't know how to play. Do you GM any other systems? I'm trying to learn Shadowrun. I haven't gotten a whole lot of time to become a, a GM for that, but I've been playing in a Shadowrun game for the last six, seven months or now, maybe six months now. And the GM over the, for that game is really good. He kind of bends the rules a little bit like every GM does in some way, shape, or form. And we we converse a lot before, after, in between the games about how to do various things. I'm trying to learn that system a little bit more. And he's talked me into playing Palladium with him for some ungodly reason. Can you name any specific things that he does as a GM that you've folded into your own style? Nothing specific. I mean, it's we both kind of agree that it's more open. It's more about the characters and less about what we're talking about. We give them a setting and throw them into it and see what happens. And we try to plan as best we can for all of the craziness that is going to happen, which, nevertheless, everyone fails to do. So you started off your DMing with a completely homebrewed system or setting. Where was your inspiration? I have been what most would call a backseat creative writer since I was in middle school. And I've written short stories. And at one point I attempted to write a game as horrible as that sounds for my 12 year old self. 
I drew maps, I wrote the story, I described all the lands, everything. So homebrewing is just, I'll read a, a, a module and it sounds, Curse of Strahd, for instance. Curse of Strahd is an amazing module. I love how it reads, I love how it talks, the, the whole setup, but I couldn't run it by the book. I would want to change something about it, so I liberally steal from all the really good modules and try to pepper them into stuff because I want people to re- recognize where they are or what's going on so they can say, hey, that's a Strahd thing, or hey, that comes from Faerun, or Waterdeep is from the Sword Coast, and this and that and the other. And I'll try to pepper that kind of thing into my games so there's a, a solid foothold for experienced players and something that's familiar for even new players that may have just heard about it by the wayside. I write it myself or it doesn't get run because it's just my, the way my brain works. Did you have any guidelines for party composition or did you let them choose whatever they wanted? I started off with a guideline. So like every party really needs a healer and a fighter and you usually want a rogue, but I'm not going to tell you guys you have to play that. What they ended up choosing, I had for my very first DM set, uh, we had a ranger, a rogue, a barbarian, and a paladin. And that's just that's what they wanted to play. So, like, okay, cool, do it. And then I make adjustments if there's certain traps or certain things that are in there that I know would be best suited for a rogue, but I don't have a rogue character. Then I try to make the adjustments so that at least there's some possibility for that warlock to be able to pull it off. And you mentioned traps. Do you do other things like puzzles? I I like an RP heavy. So combat is not something that I aim for. So I do a lot of things that are puzzle-based or you need to think your way out of it, social encounters, things of that nature. Now, my current players will argue with you because they've been doing nothing but murder hoboing their way around this town, but they made that choice themselves. There was other situations that they could have easily got into but decided not to. Well, you can only guide your players to water. You can't make them pass a swim check. That's true. That is so very true. It sounds like they enjoy combat. Do you try to tailor the sessions to that, or are you trying to guide them towards more social encounters? Uh, This Thursday will be our third session. The first session I knew for sure was going to be at least partially combat, because it's, again, this that setting that I had rewrote where they started in a little bit of a jail situation. Um, So they break out of jail, and there's a couple of guards. They've got to either sneak past them or kill them. Almost everybody's going to kill them or try to. So they did that. And when they got out of the town, my assumption, which is terrible, I should never assume things, was they were going to try to get somewhere and hide and find their gear, which I had let by secret uh, uh, a couple of the players know that was hidden in a storage shed nearby. So all they had to do was go to the storage shed, get their gear, and they're, they're ready to go back to combat. I figured it would take them a little while and they would do that. I would throw a social encounter into it, maybe in a set of guards they could negotiate with or a townsperson that they could negotiate with in this area and and figure out some more information. But no, they just came straight out of it and started hunting down. Every time I said, there's a, you see movement off to the end of the street. You're not sure what it is. Somebody would go down, perception check. It's two guards coming your way. And instead of running away from it, they would all run toward it. Did you start leaving out guards that you had planned? I actually started adding more because I was I wanted to make it a little bit more difficult and say, guys, you're going to end up hurting yourself if you don't go get your gear or go talk to these people over here to find out how to remove the shackles that are magically bonded to your body and, and things like that. And they just kept going. <laughs> and I forgot the overpoweredness of a monk. And he made a, he, he picked up a, a makeshift stick, and it counted for a makeshift weapon, which is one of his proficiencies, and was able to just destroy everything that I had. Now, is this an in-person or over the internet? This is my Roll20 game. I don't currently have an in-person game. And is Roll20, do you use microphones, or is this purely text? No, we actually, I have a Discord server that we use for our voice because Roll20's voice tends to drop out and do weird things. Do you do anything 
over the voice to add to the ambiance, like hype and music? I have uh, musical selections built into Roll20 that play once I load a, a different, every time they go to a different map. And there's a couple of cues that I can bring up and play in different uh, combat situations or if there's raining or whatnot. I have a bunch of music listed in there that you can pull from SoundCloud to play directly from Roll20. And that way everybody has the ability to adjust their volumes accordingly because some people use speakers, some people use headsets, and it's just easier than trying to pipe something in and blaring their headset off. When you are planning for one of your sessions, do you try to have an ending in mind, or is it just too hard to figure out what this group's going to do? At current, I... I really have no idea what they're going to do. So I try to have a lot of different places where I could say, all right, we've hit the three or four hour mark. This is, this is where we're going to end it this week. And I try to get them to one of those many points. I mean, it would be it get inside this building for safety. So you're out of the sight of all this other stuff, get into this social encounter and they'll give you respite or food or whatever you need. Or kill this guy, and then you don't have to worry about anything for a while because you're in the corner of the town. I've, I've tried to plan around that, and so far it's worked out. The first two sessions have went well enough that I could I plan to put them in a certain spot, and it's kind of fallen to it with a few adjustments. We'll see how well that goes in the future. Do your characters do anything to add to the immersion? <laughs> that, yes. Uh, one of my characters, coincidentally, the DM for my Shadowrun game is also one of my players in D&D. He's the most experienced player of the entire group. And he has decided to play a multiple personality uh, wizard slash cleric. And his it's a stock standard idea. It's two, it's two cookie cutter characters. The worshiper of Paylor cleric and Theris Dune, I believe, is my my worst, my most evil god in this realm. And the warlock is a Theris Dune follower, but he, he decided to create this character that's multiple personality, and, and there's we've come up between the two of us, different key points if they happen, or if certain things are done to him, or happen in the game that he has to roll on a table to see which personality comes to the foray and is the control. Middle of the session last week, he gets knocked out, and that's one of the triggers that we decided on. And he has to roll on the table and he goes from his warlock evil character to his cleric good character and comes, they, they, the party doesn't know that he's, for the most part, they don't know that he's running two characters. They've kind of figured it out by now. But when he came back and they woke him up and, and fed him a potion and all that, he came back as the cleric and was heartbroken, completely and totally heartbroken that he had killed this person or that there was a, he, he wasn't sure that he had killed it, uh, but there was a, a dead person in front of him, and that the, the cleric side just couldn't do it. So the, she burned almost every spell at her disposal trying to uh, heal and revive this one person that was knocked out and another guy that was just plain dead. And I had to play with it. So that, there's a big encounter going on in that regard. They're having a big social dialogue between each other about what's going on with the character and how that's happening. And as he decides to cast this one oddball spell, Raise the Dead, or uh, Mercy for the Dead, I forget what it is, a cleric spell, though. Uh, but it's supposed to stabilize any humanoid that has been dropped to zero hit points. And you can use it as a cantrip, I think. Maybe it's a level one spell. But the character, there have been uh, several, several minutes between the death and when he tried to cast the spell. Probably more like 15 or 20. So I'm like... Normally you do this in combat and stabilize somebody. It's not going to be an out-of-combat spell to be able to raise the dead like you would at a higher level as a cleric. So I'm like, so you're not going to raise this person. And he's still continuing to try to do it. So I'm like, okay, you can raise him as a zombie. So I brought the I brought the dead guy back as a zombie that's just standing there and immediately freaks out everybody else in the whole group. As like you just a cleric has just raised a zombie and it's now standing there in front of you. It has... No current actions, but it is looking at you very hungrily. And the entire party freaks out, knocks out the player again with a bludgeoning attack so it doesn't kill her, just knocks her out. 
and take out zombie as fast as they can, which it only had one hit point. I wasn't going to try to murder hobo my party just with a, a zombie for fun. But yeah, they did that. So now they have to reap the consequences of having a multiple personality, slightly crazy wizard slash or warlock slash cleric in their group. Now, it sounds like this GM that you have for Shadowrun as a player in your game is very open to playing with the system. Have there been any times where it kind of felt like there were two GMs at the same time? Or are they pretty good about respecting boundaries? Once or twice. I do it on his, I do it to his Shadowrun game. And I, as a matter of fact, I did it on Sunday and I really felt bad about it. I had to apologize after. And then he did it to me last week to my game. Where he was like, come on, you know, that's not in the rule book. Or this spell doesn't work exactly like you're trying to make it work. I'm like, I know I'm kind of homebrewing this here. This is not a strict by the book thing. We agreed to that to begin with. Occasionally we have not quite butted heads, but we've kind of come to a point where you're both trying to wear the sheriff's badge. Yeah, but so far, and like I said, with my Shadowrun game, we've butted heads a few times in Shadowrun, but we always come to an agreement really quickly. It hasn't caused any problems whatsoever, and the only the one time last week have we had any issues with a D&D game. Of course, it was only our second session, but it was resolved within seconds, so it hasn't been an issue yet, knock on wood. Do you think having another person in your group that... Is a GM is a boon to your campaign or makes no difference? I think it helps with the other players because all of the rest of the party, and it's a six-person party, so five of the other players are all brand new. And if for some reason I'm not available through the week or I'm helping out somebody else trying to figure out what they're going to do with their level up, then he can easily step in and say, hey, I've done this before. I know what's going on. I can help you set your character and make these decisions, and he can do it from a perspective where it's not he's not trying to control their character and be that guy. He's trying to genuinely help them because he's he's a GM. He knows what he's doing. So I find it is, is a great help. So what is your current character in Shadowrun? Uh, I'll give you his, his uh, real name. Which, if anybody that plays that game hears it, they're going to be quite confused. Uh, Quentin Cassius is the guy I'm playing as Shadowrun. Uh, and he is known as a private investigator from the CAS, uh, the Confederate American states down south. Considering I'm from down south, I tried to stick somewhere I kind of knew. Um, and he is a hermetic mage that is hell-bent on using foci as his magic base. And he doesn't use summons and spirits. Although here the past few weeks have been given reason to start learning. Any particular reason why you chose the class you did? I don't really play mages. In any 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 sci-fi game, any fantasy game I've ever ever played, I don't play mages. I've always played some type of fighter. Uh, whether it be a monk with key abilities which is kind of sort of like magic and, and at least within Pathfinder. Um, or in my freeform RPGs, I play a, a fighter-styled character with, if there's any magic ability, it's very, very small, simple, innate illusion spells. And I wanted to give a mage a try. I think things have just come full circle and you're trying to be Gandalf again. I think you're right. I've found a way to finally be Gandalf. I'm a very bad Gandalf, but I'm trying. I mean, was Gandalf that great to begin with? You know, have you seen the Reddit topic that says Gandalf wasn't actually a wizard? I have a very firm policy of never go on Reddit. I'll have to find it and give it to you, because it's actually worth the read, and it goes into extreme detail that Gandalf wasn't actually a wizard. He was uh, a multi-class rogue, uh, rogue fighter. Because you never actually, in any of the books and any of the movies especially, you never actually see him cast a spell. That's not a low-level, basic spell that you can pick up from a scroll. So, like he has a staff of illumination? Right. Okay, that has piqued my interest. See? 
So it, I may actually want to play Gandalf the Grey as a wizard, but he's not actually a wizard. Which, if you know, if you knew anything about my character in Shadowrun, he's a really crappy mage, but he makes for a damn fine charismatic face. Although he doesn't have any charisma, but somehow I pull it off. For your campaign, you said that with the exception of this other GM, all the players are new. Are these people you know? These are people from uh, the communities around Twitch that I hang around with. Goobers515, his community, uh, a couple of folks that have popped in from Random Tuesdays Legion, and for the most part, three out of the five are from Hyper RPG Stumpers. Do you know what in particular got them interested? Everybody pretty much had the same answer. I've always wanted to play, but never had the ability. Did you give them a pitch for your campaign before they signed up? When I originally posted it in the three different community chats that I was opening up a D&D game, I gave them nothing more than it'll be one day of this, one of these three days during the week, we'll play at this particular time. Make what you want, and I've got a homebrew campaign. If you guys are interested, let me know. And every one of them just yes, whatever you got, whatever you want to play, let's do it. And that's when I and I as soon as I brought them into private message or brought them over to my server, I kind of gave them a lowdown. Look, we're not doing modules. I'll bring a little bit of module stuff in, sure, but you're not going to be able to grab a book and read what's going on. This is all of mine. It's a lot of homebrew. I will be bending the rules in some places. I'm sure there will be some stuff. If you look it up, it may not match up quite right. So just so you know ahead of time, and they're like, I've never played before. I would never know the difference. And where everybody was on board. Given that you play on Roll20 where everybody's dice are out in the open, are the GM dice also out in the open? Nope. I have all of my NPCs, and with the exception of a couple of rolls, I make them all, you can have them, uh, all your rolls automatically go to just GM screen, and they can't see them. So all of my attack dice for NPCs or charisma checks and things of that nature are all done privately. What's your attitude on fudging dice rolls? I try very, very, very hard not to. Normally, if it's a roll, it's a roll and that's it. There are very seldom reasons why I... It, for instance, I don't... If, I, if I'm almost about to kill one of the players and I know this is going to... This one hit's going to kill him and I roll a natural 20, I'm like, Bleh. so I do a really powerful hit, but I don't do as much damage that the dice might say. So if it was a D8 and it rolls an 8 with a natural 20 to be a 16, I'll cut that down to where it almost kills them. And I'll, I'll do it that way. The, the hit still happens, but the damage is different. And what about the inverse? Do your NPCs ever have slightly shifting goalposts for their health? You know, I'm trying to think. I, I have a, 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 a number as far as the NPCs are concerned. If, they're, if, I, if they're going to fight, if there's 35 town guards, for instance, they all have 12 hit points apiece, just to throw a number on it. And if I see that they're not having very much luck killing these lower level guys, or maybe they're, maybe they're too high level for them, and 12 hit points is just too much. Instead of taking away their hit points, I may take away the number of encounters, <clears throat> not necessarily drop their health points down. But they and they can't see the health points on the token, so they don't know. It's all up to my description. So if they do something that's really cool, for instance, my muck the other night, he had a really really good roll. I, I think it was he had a nineteen with a maximum damage for a bludgeoning attack on one guard. Normally, it wouldn't have killed him or wouldn't have taken him out. But because he hit so high and he hit so hard and he was able to use his uh, multi-attack as the monk to do a punch that also hit, but it still the, the, the guy had one hit point left. Like, you, you did such a big amount of damage there and everybody was really into that one big hit. Like, I'm not going to say he's still standing. Um, he's going to, he's knocked out. He's not dead. He's knocked out. In my campaign, uh, one of the things we used to do was if they got reduced down to one or two hit points, they had until that creature's turn 
in order to come up with a Schwarzenegger one-liner. Oh. And if they did so, the creature would be killed. Nice. So one time my brother was attacking goblins, and he was firing lightning at one of them. And so he did all but one hit point, and he knew the rules, so uh, he did his attack, and... You know what happens to a goblin when they're hit by lightning? The same thing as everything else. And the goblin expired from the terrible line that Storm says in X-Men. You've basically given everybody vicious mockery. Pretty much. And I like that. That's a great rule. I like that rule. I my My favorite homebrew rule that I have installed in my game is if you play a bard... Um, you have to sing your you you have to sing your spells. Do you have bards right now? I do. Okay, they knew the rule going into it. Oh yeah, I made definitely I made completely clear that you have to sing your song. You have to sing a song, say a poem. It's if you unless you are specifically using a lute, a flute, or whatever your uh, choice is, and even in that case, you have to hum something. Give me something as far as your bardic skill, because that's where your magic comes from, is your performance ability. And they're like, all right, I can do that. I'm like, all right, well, that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. What are some of your other home rule campaigns? I have a sheet. There's a lot. I say it's a lot. It's, I basically just made leveling up more realistic. So in between sessions, if you level up, because I don't calculate... XP until the end of the session. I think every GM does that. So I don't, I'm not going to tell you in the middle of it. Well, you gain 25 XP for killing that one goblin. I give you all that at the end of the day. So you don't have people trying to take an hour to level up in the middle of a game. Exactly, and that's that's precisely why I started doing it is because I didn't want to see that happen. But what I've added to that is you can't level up unless you take a long rest. So you can't get your hit dice, your hit points increased, or your base abilities increased unless you take a long rest. And as far as mages are concerned, and fighters to an extent because of the different abilities and feats you can learn, uh, you can't gain any new spells, gain any new feats, or increase any ability points unless you have... And it, it's a scale, a, a sliding scale for how long, uh, more time to sit and meditate and think about it with the exception of mages, if they happen to be able to buy the spell as far as a spell scroll is concerned, uh, then they can study the spell scroll and then they would know the spell. But there, there's a meditation time, as what I call it, uh, that you have to have for each level after level three. Because we started at level one. <clears throat> but I think uh, the first three levels are so intrinsic to creating the basic form of the character uh, for level one, two, and three, I've kind of softened that rule to just a long rest and within reason for your spell choices, a long rest plus one day, and all of those new abilities will show up. After level three is when it starts getting more difficult to add all that extra stuff to your character. And you have to really think about where you're at. If a character dies during the game... Are they going to just roll a new one for the next session? That depends on where they are. If they're in a mine, or perhaps they're in the Underdark or something like that, maybe. If there's a way that they could possibly get the... Because there's plenty of rules in 5e for resurrection. If there's a way they could get the body to wherever they need to go to, to resurrect the character, then that can be done. If they don't want to resurrect their character and they make that choice themselves, then we'll see where they're at, see what's available to them, and write them in accordingly. They may not come in the next session, but if they want to come back, it'll be the you know a, a session or two later, and they also they won't come back at the same level, so they'll be at least one level below the current party. So there's a bit of a penalty for just killing off a character. But you wouldn't make them start back at level one if the rest of the party was completely maxed. Right. If the, if, if the party's at level five or six, there's no... If I bring them in at level one, they're just going to get killed. At that point, 
by the time you're up to level four, level five, if you bring a level one into it, unless they can be guarded in some way, shape, or form during combat, the level ones will die. And probably one round. Between sessions, when you are trying to keep in mind what happened during the game, do you do any sort of journaling? Yes. Oh, God, yes. And because I use a Discord, a private Discord, for all of our communications, as far as game times or absences and whatnot, I've actually created a roleplay room. So if if we've stopped a previous session and they're in a safe zone, like they're in a house or they're chilling out for the night and camping, the party members can roleplay all they want to in this roleplay room. And if they didn't want to do something extraneous beyond just make dinner and talk, then we can go into roll 20 individually and I'll GM a solo five minute thing where they want to roll to create this item. And I've told we we all understand that as well. I gave them that we haven't had it happen so far. Like I said, this is only session three this week, but it is available to them if they want to do it. Beyond that, I have a copious amount of notes that I take during the session and after. Do you have an ending in mind for this? Not yet. It's I've kind of got an entire world map built out. I don't know what's actually in probably three quarters of that map. I, I know there's some cities there. I know there's some there's a couple of towers over here in, uh, in one corner of the globe. And if you go to the northern Arctic Circle, there's some pretty nasty stuff that happens up there. I don't have an end game, so to speak. Right now, it's let's just go see what happens. So the prison they started out in is that town where they're supposed to stay? No. Or are you expecting them to leave? The system that I've set up for them, the... I don't want to say too much because one of them might decide to listen. And if they do, I don't want to give away what's going on in the background. Um, They're in a small town, and the uh, prison wasn't necessarily a prison. It's the cells were up underneath in the basement area of a tavern. So instead of starting off in a tavern, you're starting off in a prison cell below a tavern. Um, and what they find is they've got these magic and magical collars around their neck that prevent them from using any kind of magic ability whatsoever. And according to what they, they gather, uh, because a couple, I had a couple of them, uh, roll a dice at the very first session to see how long they've been a prisoner. And based on that, I gave them different amounts of information in a handout. <clears throat> and according to what they know is if they leave the town with these collars on their necks, the collars will cause them to die. So their current goal is to find the guy that's running this town, get the collars off, get free to the point where they could leave the town if they want to. And, and at this moment, They've, they know where the guy's at, they've went and dealt with him, and have managed to get the collars off, but they've learned that he was holding the town hostage, because he is uh, possibly under the employ of somebody else, and the town isn't actually in on it. The, uh, the rest of the town's folks are actually being held prisoner as well, so they have to make the choice of whether they want to try to completely uh, free this town from the clutches of the evil guy and whoever he's working for or if they just want to break trot and run and go on about in their world and we'll see if that happens on thursday do you have a personal preference i want him to save the town i think that would be good because especially especially with my the one split personality character playing mostly at current he's mostly been the evil warlock character and now that he's been flipped over into the cleric side of things, I think that would help balance his character progression a little bit and, and give the party a reason not to distrust the, the character itself. <clears throat> and it'll give them a reason to bond a bit, I think. I hope. Now, you listed a couple of options they have. Do you have mapped out how these options would affect the party later on? Not completely, but I have a, a, a scope. If they don't save the town, I know what'll happen. Um, if they do save the town, but they don't do, because there's a, there's a tertiary thing that'll 
possibly happen. Again, I'm not, I don't want to give too much away because one of them might listen before it actually happens in the game. Understandable. So there's a couple of tertiary things that they could possibly key off if they free the townsfolk and they hang around in town long enough. And if they can free the town and hang out and, and take care of these tertiary items in the best possible way, or even if even if they don't do it quite in the, the the lawful good side of things, even if they go chaotic neutral through the whole deal, it's still fine. They just won't get quite as much benefit out of the deal. If they skip it all entirely and just try to get off, because they're on an island, a very large island, but it's still an island, and they figured that out as, as well. So they know if they want to get back to their homelands, because they're, they're all from different areas of the, of the world. So if they want to go back to their homeland, they got to go to the to the nearest port city and make their way from there. So I know what's going to happen in the port city. I know exactly what will happen there. But if they don't clear the town, then the port city becomes more difficult. Would you say you run a more comedic Dungeons & Dragons, a more intense Dungeons & Dragons? How would you describe it? I want it to be 50-50. That's what I want it to be. I try to keep everything as light as I can when it can be. But when there's a moment that needs to be really deep and you need to really, you need to feel that emotional grab for what's going on. I try to make sure as good as I possibly can that they understand that there is an emotional or or some kind of a deep link to this thing. And I'm not going to be making funny voices or trying to make jokes during it. Now, if they're just bebopping through a, a forest, for instance, if they're just hopping around through a forest all willy-nilly on the way to the next area, then yeah, sure, we'll have a weird goblin show up or something odd. It just depends on what they're doing. But I want to keep it as 50-50 as I can. I don't want to make it too dark, but I don't want to have it a comedic romp of Mel Brooks movie. Have you had to rein in your players yet? No, not so far. In any of the, in the previous game, in my, my in-person game, or in this game, I never had to rein anybody in. I did run a 5e game for a bunch of kids, uh, all of them less than 15 years old. Uh, and I kind of put together a quick homebrew for that, too. And I made all their characters for them. And that got really wild really fast. But I had two 8-year-olds, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 16-year-old. So... It was kind of expected. Were the early teens all rogues? No, I actually, I like I said, I made their characters for them. And I didn't know how many for sure were, were going to be over for this game. So I just made a bunch of different characters. And I had a monk. I had a ranger. I had a rogue. One of them was a sorcerer. Uh, I had a bard. And I had a paladin. But they were all playing children, young versions. So they were uh, those those character archetypes in training. Were you trying to tailor the characters to their players? Yes. Yeah, I really did. I tried to because I, I knew I knew at, at most I was going to have this many people, and I knew all the kids kind of well. Some of them I didn't know nearly as well as the others because friends of family and whatnot. I tried to tailor a character that I thought would fit them as best as possible. And it worked out pretty well, I think. They were all really happy with it. What was the impetus for this game? It was one of those... I was I, It was one of my buddies at work, and I was talking to him about watching... This was last year, so Hyper wasn't a thing yet. Which, well, I was talking about watching Critical Role, or maybe one of the Watsi Acquisition Incorporated episodes from PAX last year. And I was telling him about that, and he's like, my boy plays D&D with some of his friends every now and then, but they don't play very often. It's like, I was always kind of curious to what he was doing whenever he'd go over to the kid's house. And I forget what his name was now. And I kind of explained it to him. He's like, huh, that sounds kind of fun. I wouldn't mind playing a game myself. But I tell you what, we got a three day weekend coming up. It was a holiday. Might've been Labor Day last year. So we got a three day weekend. We'll come over to the house. I'll barbecue. Wife will cook potato salad. You guys come over. And while we eat BS around, I'll run a game for you. And next thing I know, I had seven people, two adults, and I'm running a game and doing the most horrible voices that you can think of, trying to keep the kids laughing and and go from there. 
That sounds like a pretty good time. Yeah, it was great. I really wanted to try to do that more often, but school schedules and that was right about the time that band season started up for my daughter and his boys are all soccer players and whatnot and it just never worked out. So timing, whatever. And he was on third shift and I, I got moved over to first shift. So we just couldn't line our schedules up again. What's your daughter's bardic instrument? Uh, she was singer. She carried a lute, but she couldn't play it very well. Kind of like her own real self. She was a, uh, uh, she can sing real good. Real, she can sing real good. Uh, she can sing pretty well and she's learning how to play the guitar. So she actually sat here in the living room with her acoustic guitar she would read the spell name and she's 16. So she would read the spell name and what it did. And she's watched a few episodes of critical role with me. So she's heard Scanlan, uh, do his adaptations of current day music to situations. So she tried to do that poorly. It was hilarious, but that's what she aimed for. Does she play normally or was it just for this? And it's one of those, she's 16 and she can't decide what she wants to do with her free time. She doesn't want to hang out with all the cool kids playing Dungeons and Dragons. Well, a couple of her girlfriends kind of want to try it out one day. But again, this time of year, we're back into band season and everybody's busy. I mean, she's at practice right now for another half hour, 45 minutes or so. So that by the time she gets home and does her homework... And they got competitions on Saturday. It just doesn't work out to where we can get a game going until probably next year. But some of her friends want to try it. And I've told them a couple times, all you got to do is let me know ahead of time and I'll build some stuff up. Write you guys a couple of characters out. We'll play. We're going to start wrapping up. But before we do, I will ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire pioneered by Bernard Pivo. All right. As seen on some other program of a similar nature. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite word? Do I get to be profane? Hey, if it's your favorite, it's your favorite. Fuck. What is your least favorite word? No. Don't tell me no. I'll find a way to do it. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Creatively, there are any number of things. I, I love anything fantasy. If it's a weird, out-there idea, I will latch onto it, read, peruse, pour myself into it, and then bring all of the all of the everything that I can pull out of that new idea and try to incorporate it into my own. What turns you off? tropes honestly at the end of the day tropes if, if it's the same thing that's been done and rinsed and repeated so many times that you can cookie cutter a book or a story or a video game and you know the ending before you even start it's not worth my time does that extend to your characters in your session you can cookie cutter the stats and try to build in a certain direction but as long as your role play is different. I mean, everybody's going to bring something else to the table. And you can say at the onset, you're going to build Legolas, and you're going to be that really badass elf ranger. And by the time, I don't want to say the end of the game, because there's never really an end. But to, to just put it out there, by the end of it, you're not Legolas. You started out wanting to be him. And by the fourth session, the, the 12th, 13th, 14th hour, you started making decisions that were distinctly not Legolas. So there's no way, unless you specifically do it every step of the way, you can't trope an RP character. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Damn it. That means they made a mistake. What sound or noise do you love? Uh... Yeah, I really don't. And eh, yeah, I got nothing on that. I don't really have a, a. There's no sound that just makes me smile. I guess maybe the opening of a beer. I guess would be the closest thing. What sound or noise do you hate? 
the alarm at my at my job. If you, it's a really loud dock horn style alarm on one of my primary machines. If I hear that, my entire brain fries because I know it's going to be a bad day. What game system would you like to attempt? Well, I'm dipping my toes into Palladium in the next couple of months. So, yeah. And I heard something, oh, somebody in chat mentioned one, uh, Lord, I can't think of the name of the game now, but they said, we were talking about Psionics and how Psionics were broke in most RP games. And somebody piped up and said, this game had a really good set of Psionics with a really nice rule set that didn't seem broken. You might want to investigate that. And I think I might research it, but I'll have to scroll back up through chats to find it. What game system would you not like to attempt? I can't... I don't think I could ever LARP. Any kind of system that involves LARPing. Other than that, I'm willing to try just about anything. Is it the social stigma to it, or... No. I Social doesn't bother me a bit. It just... It doesn't look as much fun as you see on TV, you know? I mean, Felicia Day made it look really cool from that aspect of it when she did the guilt, because there was a a little bit of a LARPing aspect to that. Being off in a park for two days, or even a a long afternoon with a bunch of people that have a great idea for their character, and they want to stick to that so hard that they're not willing to bend or move when you come up with a better idea or a different idea in general. It just seems like it would be the biggest conglomeration of butting heads ever. And I don't think I could deal with that. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? That they want to do it again. Thank you, Sizen, for joining us at the Masters Studio today. Uh, Thank you for having me, sir. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if you want to make your players second-guess themselves, just smile. Music